Our Father, we are thankful for the salvation that you have provided through the risen Lord Jesus Christ. And we ask tonight that your Holy Spirit illuminate our hearts to the truths that surround the resurrection event, how it's interpreted in the Scripture correctly, over against how the world hastily dismisses it as a myth and a legend. We ask that you would do this through our Savior's name. Amen. Um, tonight we'll finish up. Uh, you've got the last set of notes up until now, the resurrection. And this is a good cutoff point because in the fall we'll start working with um, the ascension of Christ and get into the church age, Pentecost, and that sort of thing. Um, I'd like to start tonight, but if you turn in your notes to page 103, um, to Dr. Ladd's quotation about the resurrection. And it's, it's uh, what we've been trying to uh, point out uh, in this series, is that um, all of these events, biblically, have to be interpreted in the, frame, in the frame of reference. So you have an isolated event, in this case the resurrection, but that resurrection is itself interpreted in a framework of Scripture. It's not just cut out, held up as a, as a marble, and then look at this thing and draw your own conclusions. That's not how the Scripture works. And uh, <clears throat> what he points out here in this quote is what uh, Paul does in 1 Corinthians 15. He died and he rose again according to the scriptures, remember? Well, as Ladd points out, Jesus' resurrection is not an isolated event that gives to men the warm confidence and hope of a future resurrection. It is the beginning of the eschatological resurrection itself. And that's very important. It is the beginning of the end when Christ rose from the dead. If we may use crude terms to try to describe sublime realities, we might say that a piece of the eschatological resurrection has been split off and planted in the midst of history. The first act of the drama, it should be, not drama, of the last day has taken place before the day of the Lord. So the idea here is that we want to look very, very carefully at the resurrection as, as the unfolding of the end times. And uh, that's the point we're trying to get across. And that's why on the, ne the next diagram that we have that we've been looking at is um, found on page 113, um, where you have this state, if you can diagram it in terms of righteousness, minus righteousness, and zero righteousness, and you start, man starts out with at zero... In the, in the creation and um, has the opportunity um, by obeying God to gain righteousness th through obedience and attain the goal for the human race. That was an open possibility for Adam and Eve. But Adam and Eve chose not to do that. They fell and so we, we go into sin and then man waddles around down here being saved or rejecting salvation and those who trust the Lord Jesus Christ who have imputed righteousness then are raised to be where Adam and Eve would have been had they obeyed. And if they don't, they just continue. But then, either way, immortality begins. So this is a new portion of history here. 
This is the history without repentance. It's a very sobering kind of history to think about because um, in our time, in our history now, in our own ordinary lives, we are able, I mean, given God's grace, uh, to switch side, you know, to, to uh, join, join Christ. And this is not true here. And Christ himself taught that in the parables. So th- this is the sobering side of the resurrection. So when you hear that the resurrection gives hope, it gives hope only to certain people. And it gives horror to other people. The resurrection is actually a horrible thing to think about if, if you or I were to die without Christ. Because what it does, it locks us into an indestructible body that's forever going to be separated from God. Um, that's why Jesus said the resurrection unto life and the resurrection unto damnation. It's two resurrection directions here. So we've been trying to uh, show that in this eternal state where we have immortal history, this is immortal history in the sense it's frozen uh, categorically, you have a barrier. Um, in that future time, God will be glorified, man will be glorified, and the creation, the nature, will be glorified. And we've been going through that, and we said, page 11, God, man, is, man in mortal, unglorified history. Then we said, man in, more, in immortal, glorified history. And then we've gotten down to the last part, where we have the glorification of nature, where nature fully reflects its design back to man. The problem right now is, if you turn in Romans chapter 8, is that, and this has always been a problem um, in one of the so-called proofs for the existence of God, uh, is the so-called teleological argument, which means you see design in nature, so therefore there's a designer, that sort of thing. The problem, however, is that an astute unbeliever, the non-Christian, can always point to chaos in nature and bad things in nature. So if the Christian is trying to argue, look, on the basis of this design, don't you see the designer? An unbeliever can turn around and say, yeah, don't you see this iniquity, this chaos, this horror, this suffering, don't you think of the person who caused that? And that's always been the weakness in the theological argument. But it's explained in Scripture. In Scripture, Romans 8.18, where Paul goes into this very point showing that nature, as we now see it in the fall, we're living in this part of nature here, all during this period. And we're living in the day of the mixture of good and evil. So going back to that diagram that we've shown over and over, we're in that mixed period. And good and evil coexist. And that holds true of the physical universe around us, so there are, you, can, you can see bad things in nature. So you say, well, then how does nature testify to the glory of God? It originally testified to the glory of God. After the fall, parts of it don't. They testify to his cursings. Actually, they still testify to the glory of God because his cursings are administered by a sovereign plan too. But you can see what I'm getting at as far as the optimum design kind of thing. So in Romans 8-18, For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. That glory which is to be revealed is the final end state. It's not just Christ as Paul knew him. He's talking about the glory which shall be revealed is in this immortal period compared to the glory which shall be, future tense, be revealed. 
to us. For the anxious longing... Now, he doesn't say of the people in verse 18, verse 19. Notice the subject, the anxious longing of the creation, object of the preposition there, waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. Now, what's the revealing of the sons of God? Remember, when back in creation, here's again the unity of the Bible. You can't take a piece of the Bible and disconnect it from another piece. The Bible is a unified whole. And in the creation story... Who is the Lord of creation? Al little d. It's man. And nature is to be under man. And even here in verse 19, you still see that ranking, that nature has been cursed. Well, why was nature cursed in the first place? The ground was cursed because of Adam's disobedience. So nature received its curse because of man's problem. And as he said again and again, here's another thought that totally collides with our environment, and that is, you want to talk ecology? Let's talk ecology, very seriously. The greatest ecological disaster ever done was the fall of man. But see, when we start talking about that kind of ecology, all of a sudden we stop talking about ecology and environment. We don't want to talk about it in those terms. That's making man too responsible. A few Coke bottles by the roadside, yeah, we can talk about our environment. But when we start talking about the fact that man was the cause of the damnation of the environment, then we would back off at that sort of thing. And that's the thing we want to, as we go into the framework again and again, keep in mind we live in a hostile world system. Uh, I mean, just today I was listening to the radio, and they were, the Christian radio, and they were telling about um, the, uh, what's happening in the Supreme Court today with the hearing of the thing. So they had Christian pro-life people outside the court. And they all got arrested. Well, before this Christian group was standing there, they had checked with the Supreme Court police. Is this okay? Is this okay? Is this cool? Yeah, yeah, that's okay. Everything was cool. Then they get arrested anyway. Because all of a sudden, the police told them that now you're under arrest because of uh, Regulation 6. Well, they called the lawyers up. What's Regulation 6? This wasn't discussed in the meeting before. Oh, that's one they made today, this morning. Supreme Court actually can meet and make rules as you go along. So, I mean, if the law is just so flexible, you can't obey it because you don't know what it is. You know, what is it this hour? Maybe it'll be something again the next hour. So, you're starting to see this is the kind of thing, and it's, it's motivation. They wouldn't pull that on a civil rights person. They'd bunch a bunch of homosexuals outside the Supreme Court. They wouldn't have dared do that. If it had been a, a group of uh, black people, they wouldn't have done it. But they can do it to pro-life because ultimately it's a hatred for Jesus Christ. It's the motivation factor here. The pagan world system is frightened to death by the gospel. And instead of being intimidated by it, we have to kind of, you kind of have to, after all, you back off and relax and sort of laugh at it. I mean, why are these people so desperate? I mean, all we've got here is a book. You know, stop thinking of it. This book, the most dangerous book in the world. They are so terrified of the ramifications of this book. You know, we talk about open-mindedness and freedom of speech. Yeah, freedom of speech until we get here. Now, we're going to cancel the freedom of speech here now. Can't tolerate it over here. So, when we get into these ideas like we're talking about, good, evil, sorry, these are basic root ideas and we have to understand. That's why I always teach them adversarially. I like to teach the Bible over against the environment because that's the, I don't know about you, but that's where I live. I live in a hostile environment. 
And so each day it's always jostling around. And you want to learn sort of a, a combat preparation for these, these ideas. These ideas are very dangerous. These are considered extremely subversive. So when we talk about the glorification of nature, as in Romans 8, it's, it's extremely subverting and upsetting to rebellious man who wants to feel like he's halfway in control of the environment. And to say that, verse 19, that the creation waits for the resurrection. It's basically what it's saying. And, I, you know, I've thought about... One of the neat things about demonstrations and stuff is... Um, I remember years ago I, I led a demonstration against... Uh, as a counter-demonstration against some Iranians in Texas who were demonstrating against the Shah. I remember when the Shah of Iran was going on and... And uh, the Shah's son happened to be in the city where I was, getting, uh, getting a training at the nearest air base. Well, you had all these foreign students coming into this West Texas town. Of course, they, they forgot something. That when they planned the demonstration, they forgot this is West Texas. And in West Texas, things are done slightly differently than the East Coast. So they, they, they kind of screwed up there. And they brought all these mass people into this city to demonstrate. And we were trying to figure out how we could sabotage it somehow, and with humor. Because it's, it's hard. the problem, if you can do it with humor and make them look like fools, it's hard for them to get angry at it because the more angry they get at something that's funny, the funnier it gets. You just kind of got to know human psychology this way. And, and everybody starts enjoying it. <laughs> And so what we thought we could do was we, we thought of one of the local people in the church had a gardening group, uh, he was a landscape company, and we thought of taking one of his trucks with manure out of the cattle feedlots and staging a mock accident because the court had decreed that they had to go through certain roads. So we knew exactly where they would go. And we thought we would set this thing up so it would dump all this stuff out all over the front and then we'd get the press to take pictures of them wadding through this cow manure. We thought that would be a good welcome to West Texas. Um, but anyway, make a long story short, we couldn't do that and we had to have a sign that, w that was kind of ridiculing their cause. But they got very upset. And one of the things I learned about that was that the leaders, this wasn't just a group of innocent students, for one thing, if you looked at the posters that they were holding in the parade, they had two-by-fours in them. Those weren't just sticks. And when they got by where I was, they wanted so bad to come after me. Well, I was just sitting there with my sign right inside the road. And, but what I saw was an interesting thing. All of a sudden, out of apparently nowhere, four or five adults came, and I was there, and the parade was going by here, and they stood like this in front of me against the students. And I really realized after that how professional of them. Because they knew that if the students broke ranks in the parade and came across the curb, the sheriff's deputies would get them. So they didn't want to ruin the parade. So they had to keep their, these angry students contained. And it was their people that did it. I thought that was so nice. But as it went on, more and more publicity, because I just followed them in and we set up the signs again. 
because the court had said you're going to do it this way. And it angered the local people anyway because the court was telling the local people where they could go this, and we used to have places to do this and so on. But to make a long story short, every time I did it, I got more and more press. Until finally, at the end of this thing, they must have had two or three hundred students in this parade. I walked away, it was one third of the pictures were of me, and one third of the interviews were of me. So I figured, hey, for an hour investment, it took away 33% of their publicity. Now, that's the kind of thing that you kind of have to go with the world system. We don't have to be passive to this kind of thing. It's just that if you can think of a way of ridiculing in a quasi-humorous way, it's very powerful. It is far more powerful than some violent, angry reaction. So, the same thing goes when we deal with any kind of this doctrine. The only opposite, this is why I show this thing so often is let's not just learn the Christian position, learn the pagan position. These people are the suckers. I mean, can you imagine? They, they, the poor people haven't even thought through this bottom line. That's where the unbeliever is. If you don't want to buy into the scriptures, look at the mess you're in here. How are you going to get rid of good and separate the good from the evil? You don't have a resurrection. You can't show any evidence. I mean, you're pathetic. You have no answer to this problem. And you see, by doing that, you turn the debate back onto them. After all, the non-Christian position is the one in rebellion. The non-Christian position is the one that doesn't really fit reality. It's not us. They're not fitting reality. So when you think of these things, always think in terms of antithesis and how you cannot just defend the faith, but aggressively press against the non-Christian position. So Paul here... The anxious longing of the creation waits for the resurrection. And can you imagine in a classroom discussion or in a neighbor discussion, they're talking about some ecological issue or something else, and uh, maybe a whale got washed up on Ocean City or something, and uh, you say, well, yeah, he was waiting for the resurrection of, of, the, of the church. And it's just so incongruous to just drop something like that in the middle of this conversation that they either think you're totally crazy and, and disregard you, or they'll ask a question, well, what do you mean by that? Gives you an opportunity to go back in and discuss the, discuss the matter. 4, verse 20, the creation was subject to fertility, notice, not of its own will, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will also be set free from its slavery to corruption into the glory of the children of God. For we know the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for adoption. That is, the redemption of what? Our souls? Notice the, notice the language there. The redemption of our bodies. See, that's talking about resurrection. For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is not seen is not hope. For why, uh, for why does one also hope for what, uh, for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, that is the resurrection of the future, with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. And then it goes on to the various other things in the Christian life. But Paul is applying this great principle of the glory which shall be revealed is not just a private resurrection, it's a cosmic resurrection that changes the universe of not only just resurrected Christians. It changes the whole nature of the universe. 
So that's what we mean when we talk about the glorification of nature. It's the thing that is going to be changed. In Revelation 21-22 that we mentioned last week, that's the key passage for the new, new heavens and the new earth. Okay. Now what we want to do, we've gone through the, resurre- the uh, glorification of God, of man, and of nature, and now we're going to conclude by showing some applications of this doctrine of resurrection. So, let's... Um, Let's take up these applications. There's a lot more. that These are just suggestions. Here's the event, understood in a scriptural framework now. So this is embedded in an Old Testament and New Testament interpretation of the resurrection. It's not just an isolated miracle. Do any of you... Um, have a chance to see that claymation uh, picture of uh, Christ on television? You know, I thought that was one of the finest theologically correct pictures of the life of Christ I've ever seen. Um, I don't know how they did it with clay, but they did it in some way. And I thought it was very good. They, had, they made Christ um, with dignity, but they also made him I thought like uh, you would expect um, as just a human being. Like one of the dialogues that just struck me was so intriguing and I wondered what the scriptwriter had thought about when they put this script into the claymation. I remember they had Jesus visiting Mary and Martha and, and I forgot what the dialogue was but Mary and Martha said something to him and he says, you mean your door still doesn't, you know, I fixed your door last time. Is it, was it still broken or something? And it was just reflection on he was a real carpenter. And he really did those things. And, you know, we get into so deep theology that it's almost inconceivable to think of the God-man, the Son of Man, talking about Mary and her door that doesn't work. Um, But I thought that was cute. I thought that was a neat scripture that brought up very neatly uh, Jesus as a man, as a human being. Okay. Um, Four things, pages 116 to 117, that I'd like to cover, um, 118 also. First one is the role that we just did in Romans 8 of showing that the resurrection is the basis of Christian hope. Now, I don't mean that in this trivial sense. Oh, isn't that a nice thought? But rather, hope in this sense, that it is the first section of this breaking of good and evil apart forever and ever, the final separation. So that was what we mean by the basis of Christian hope. And we use the word eschatology because the word eschatology is the knowledge of eschat, the last things. Eschos, eschatos. It's a Greek word that means the last, last things. So this is the doctrine of last things. And if you think about it, the only movement that has come close to Christianity in history as far as something that gathers people together and keeps them so they can endure hardship is communism. And communism had an eschatology. This is why the secular West never understood communism. And I think if you're interested in history, one of the books you need is to read Chuck Colson's The Body because it's a narration of the role of the church in the undoing of communism. 
And this is not to minimize the pressure that Ronald Reagan put on the Soviet Union by Star Wars. That was a tremendous pressure. But that broke the back of something that was already rotting from inside. And when you read Chuck Colson's The Body, you read about the, the thing that happened in Romania. Uh, you read about the, what happened at the Gorbachev's last review in, in the Red Square where the troops were marching through and they had the rockets and you always used to see every year the Cold War May Day, they'd have this big celebration, everything, the missiles all going parading by and the guys in their black coats and somber Russian clothing sitting up there looking at the, all the red flags, big thing of Lenin in the background. And at that last one, so interesting that at the end of the parade suddenly some Christian Russians got in the back with a crucifix, held it way up, and yelled at Gorbachev as they went by, Christ has risen. Unheard of in, in, in conformist Russia for anybody to have the guts to do that. And there never was another Red Square review. That was the end. That was the last one under communism. And Chuck Colson in his book, The Body, goes on and on with these incidents. And you realize, wow, we never got that in the newspapers. We always thought of it in economic terms. But it was more than that. It was a spiritual vacuum in the East that finally had to be filled. And it was Christians. The present Pope, who was a cardinal in Poland, he was the one that led a lot of the resistance in Poland to communism. So it was a time when Christianity and communism collided and it was only Christianity's eschatology that won because only Christian eschatology is based on facts. Communism was based on a dream. Christianity is based on a living hope and it's a hope that's been verified in history by the resurrection of Christ. So that's why you see hope. Hope is ultimately rooted on the resurrection. How do we know the promises of God are true? Because of Jesus Christ. He was born the way the Bible said he was. He, it lets you know that when you read a prophecy, you can't just allegorize it. Jesus wasn't born in Nazareth. He was born in Bethlehem. Where did the prophecy say the king was going to be born? In Bethlehem. So where was he born? Bethlehem. Bethlehem wasn't a symbol of, of some city somewhere. It was literal Bethlehem into which was born a literal savior. It also said that, that he shall come out of Egypt. Did Jesus come out of Egypt? Yeah, because his parents took him down to avoid genocide and he came back out of Egypt. So did he literally go down to Egypt? Egypt's not a symbol. Egypt's not uh, you know, a stand-in symbol for the, for the nations or something. It's literal Egypt. And so Christ's life verifies the hermeneutic by which you interpret the text of Scripture. And so the resurrection tells us an awful lot about our Christian hope that it involves matter not just the soul. It's not enough for the soul to be saved. The body has to be saved. And God is interested in saving the body, and not only our bodies, but the universe, the physical universe. The moon is going to be saved. The sun is going to be saved. The stars are going to be saved. The whole universe is going to be saved. But that argues again that the fact that it has to be saved tells you that in its present state, it's abnormal. The sun is not normal. The moon that you see at night is not a normal moon. It too suffers part of the curse of the fall. The stars we see are not normal. The whole universe is abnormal. And it will be restored in the eschatology based on the resurrection. 
So this is why the lone resurrection of Christ is an anchor to the universe. Nothing has ever been like it before. One of the interesting things that... I was listening to a tape by D. James Kennedy in which he was defending the validity of the Shroud of Turin. And I think we had raised that discussion here back a couple of Thursday nights ago. And uh, one of the things that he says is very interesting about the Shroud of Turin is that for all the study that's been done on it, this, this negative picture of this person that's on this, this fabric, there's a picture on there and there's no dye. There's no paint. Not one chemical analysis has been able to find any paint on that fabric. Now, what is it that's causing the picture? Well, if you go under a microscope, you see what's causing, the, causing this image to appear is the fibers have had the water dried out rapidly out of the certain areas of this thing. And that's what caused this picture. And the only thing that we can think of is some sort of flash heat that did this at one point. Now, I'm not prepared to say it's, I'm 100% convinced it's genuine, but I'm saying it's a very interesting artifact, and, and the study that's been done on it has, has been very interesting. And if, if that's correct, we have an evidence of the resurrection. Because the other thing about the shroud is that there, it has the blood stains, or it has a picture of the blood of a, of a man who's been crucified, who has a crown of thorns, and so on. A lot of little interesting details. But they say if, if he was wrapped with that, and then somebody stole the body, you know, the idea, the unbelieving idea, the only explanation is somebody stole the body. Because if, you know, unless it atomized itself. So to do so, you'd have to unwrap the body. But to unwrap it, you'd smear this, this part of the blood. And it's not smeared. It was wrapped around, and, and for, if, if this is the real thing, you could think of the resurrection going through it. It's like it goes through a wall. And when it happened, the instant of the resurrection happened, I mean, just, you just wish, gosh, I wish they had video cameras in those days. Maybe we couldn't capture them on video. I don't know. But whatever, something happened, and all of a sudden, he's resurrected. Every molecule in his body was changed. Now, let's think about that. You know, every molecule in our body has carbon atoms in it, hydrogen atoms in it. Do you suppose there are molecules in the new heavens and the new earth? You know, that's an interesting question. Are there? We don't know. Whatever they are, though, you can touch it because Thomas touched it. So whatever this mass is in the, in the new universe to come, it, it has mass just like this metal up here. It has mass. The body takes up space. It weighs something. Apparently, it can be subject to gravitational forces. Jesus didn't flow. He walked. Yet, on the other hand, the resurrection structures seem to be able to go through this universe, pass through it, or just appear and disappear. So what is the strange thing? We don't know what the strange thing is. The point is, however, we know that it exists. However strange it is, it exists because Jesus made it clear that he did. And we know he took time to show this because if you turn over to the book of Acts, Paul, uh, Luke, being the careful person he was and acquainted with, with science of his time, he was a medical doctor. Uh, that's why Luke is a, is a good author to read. Each one of these men who wrote the Gospels has got to be respected for what they were. 
Luke was a, was a very incisive thinker. And as I've said before, you can see the personality of Luke in his writing. He's the only guy that interviewed the women. Who is it that, who is it that carries on the discussions of what the women felt like when they were pregnant? It's only found in the Gospel of Luke. Well, why is that? Because he was a doctor. That was on his mind. Well, he interviewed Mary. He must have. He got this information somewhere. And he was very careful about the body. Because what is the physician concerned with? The body. So guess who God drafted to write a gospel in the book of Acts? A doctor. So, verse 1, Acts 1, the first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had, by the Holy Spirit, given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. To these also. Now, look at this. He presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. So, there it is. There's the medical doctor's summation of his investigation and study. It took 40 days. So, the basis of the Christian hope was shown by evidence over a 40-day period, shown up to 500 people at a time, that's 1 Corinthians, 500 people simultaneously saw him, and there's enough evidence there to substantiate the Lord Jesus. I mean, are we pretty convinced what's on the moon's surface? Astronauts went up there 40 days, but we got a lot of data out of the few days they were up there. When I was at Marshall Space Flight Center a couple of weeks ago, you know, you look in there and there's the evidence. Here's, the, here's one of the lunar modules, piece of it that came back. There's the space station. There's the cloth, the guys that walked the... There's the vehicle. So, come on. There wasn't any 40 days. So here we have a long time period for gathering of evidence. 40 days of appearances. Okay, that's one thing, one application, the basis of our Christian hope. And what's so nice about this is it's not rooted on our emotions. And we can get up any given day and feel exhausted, tired, sick, depressed, and the resurrection still happened. Doesn't make any difference how you feel. Resurrection's still there, still staring us in the face, regardless of how tired, how depressed how emotionally down we are. doesn't make any difference. We have an objective basis here on which to rely. And that's why Paul kept drawing us back. Remember in Colossians, we'll see this more next year, the power of the resurrection of the Christian life, where he says, if you be risen with Christ, and the Greek means, and you are, the spiritual union with the resurrected Christ, which we have to treat differently than we are here. But the point is, it would be a totally meaningless sentence if Christ hadn't risen from the dead. So, it's an incentive, a powerful, objective, stable incentive to Christian living. The second thing, uh, on page 117, is something pointed out a while back, many years ago actually now, by a guy that revolutionized Christian counseling. Back in the 60s, there's a lot of nonsense going around evangelical Christianity in this area of counseling. What had happened was that people would go to college and they'd study psychology. And they'd get their degree. But they were Christians. So then they'd go out, Bible here, 
the psychology books here. Now we're going to get Christian counseling. Well, the problem is the two books weren't coming together very well. So you had Christians, who were genuine Christians, but using the system of the world. And Jay Adams just, he became as controversial in counseling as, as Morris and Whitcomb became controversial in geology and earth science. Because what Jay Adams did is he wrote a book that was the bombshell of the time called Competent to Counsel. And his argument was that any Christian that knows the Bible is competent to counsel. You don't need a degree or certification to do it. Well, you can imagine how this went over like a big lead balloon. But his whole point was, what's the New Testament but counseling? Isn't, aren't the epistles of the New Testament counseling churches, which are not buildings, they're people. And they're counseling them on how to live life. What area of life is not covered in the epistles of the New Testament? That's what Adam said. Well, then why are we listening to them then? So in the middle of that, he, one of the things that J. Adams did was bring in the resurrection. And that quote that I have on page 117 is how he did it. And I thought this was just an interesting insight into using the image of the resurrection, that drawing that we, I showed earlier, and it's in the notes, uh, this one, where you start off and then you go down, then the resurrection takes you above where you started. Well, I, Adams took that to be uh, a microcosm of how God works. It, it's almost like it's a cycle. And you can see this in the Christian life. If you diagram Christian growth, then it was it's like a growth curve, something like this. Okay? Let's imagine we can take a microscope and enlarge this graph so we actually see it. What Adams is pointing out to, if you could enlarge that, you'd see a series like this. That first we get into a problem. We may stumble and fall, not carry the ball very well. We go along. Then all of a sudden the Lord shows us how to cope with it. And we make a big improvement now. Now we're up here. There's been some advance. And then we rock along and then boom, we go down again. But every time we recover from those things, we recover to a higher point than we did before when we were entering the, the trial. So that's what he's saying here. The counselee, person being receiving the counseling, must be given a vision of overcoming evil with good, of turning tragedy into triumph. He must see that it is God's purpose to use crosses to lead to resurrections. When sin abounds, and we must be entirely realistic about the abounding nature of sin, nevertheless, the counselor must point out, grace even more abounds. There is a solution to every problem, but that is not all. It is a solution that is designed to lead one beyond the place where he was before the problem emerged. Though man was created lower than the angels, and by sin descended to a still lower position, Christ's redemption did not merely put man back again into his original condition. He has raised him far above the angels. Job learned it at length. The Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. And I just think that's a neat observation and just an encouragement when the going gets rough and it just seems we're down in the trough here. It's nice to know that when you come out of the trial, you're more advanced than when you went into the trial. Even though you may be hurting, you may have scars, you may be damaged, but from God's point of view, you've been raised. And I think that's an encouragement, and it'd be good to reflect on how the Lord works in your life in the past. See if you can watch that pattern. 
and see if you don't think that works out. I've looked at my past, and I can see how it works out. And just see if that, that pattern. And then be encouraged. That's, that seems to be the way the Lord works. This is the, He works this way in the universe. This is how He works on a large scale. And He, and he seems to work like that on a small scale. All right, the third application, I think we've already mentioned in these classes, and that is the one about evangelism in Acts 17. So let's turn to Acts 17 just to review that. Another example of the application of the, of the doctrine of the resurrection at the point of the gospel. How did the apostles connect the gospel to the resurrection? In Acts chapter 17, verse 31. All right, let's go back up to verse 30. Having overlooked the times of ignorance, that is, when God did not promulgate the gospel. Times of ignorance doesn't mean... Here's some things it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that men didn't know God existed. Why? Because of Romans 1. All men know the truth. So it can't mean that they were totally ignorant of God. What the times of ignorance mean is that men were left with just the Noahic Bible that they had pretty well crushed out of existence and distorted and perverted. So the amount of revelation available was pretty minimal. And the Jews were not commissioned to go out and preach the gospel to every creature. That's Israel. The church has a new commission. So, looking at history before the church and the Great Commission, it says, this is the times of ignorance. So he, he, he says, therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to all men everywhere that they should repent. That's the mandate. That's the gospel mandate. And that's the one that is what, what I guess I've heard unbelievers say, that they're upset with the thing about Christianity is, how does one of them put it? They use the term um, imperial, uh, uh, cultural imperialism. That's the term I'm thinking of. I heard an unbeliever say, you Christians, you follow a policy of cultural imperialism. And I thought about that. I think, you know, that's right. That's good. He, he's not ignorant. <laughs> he saw truth of the gospel. We are cultural imperialists in the sense that we have an order here that says the gospel is true outside of Judaism, it's true outside of Israel, it's true all over on every continent to all men, everywhere. And by the way, this shows you that men, the masculine men, is being used for both man and female, because it's obviously not depriving women of the gospel. Having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all everywhere should repent. Now, what is the basis of this cultural imperialism? The basis is, verse 31, because all nations and all men and everywhere are going to be faced with the resurrection. That's why. Everyone is going to be, be judged by a man whom he has appointed and has given proof to them by raising him from the dead. So, the resurrection... And the third thing, third application of the resurrection, is to the gospel. 
And the gospel is preparing people for that time, that fork in the road, when good will be separated from evil. And it's not just going to happen to Jews, and it's not going to just happen to a few Gentiles who read their New Testament. That's going to happen to every person, everywhere, that speaks every language and walks around in every kind of physiological body that we term different races. Everybody. So the resurrection sort of levels people, and at the same time, in verse 30 and 31, it gives an envelope of time. There's, it promotes an urgency in the sense that this moment is coming. And we don't know when this moment is going to happen, but it's a coming moment, and we don't have an infinity of time before that point, that before that cutoff point. It's coming. The clock is ticking. Every day that goes by is one day closer to that event of the resurrection and the judgment. So, so that's the application of the gospel to, to evangelism. And then I read to you last time that neat quote, bottom of page 117, top of page 118 by C.S. Lewis. I think it's just, as no one but Lewis could have that literary finesse to describe um, people as um, potential gods and goddesses. That's a remarkable literary picture of it. And then finally we come to the fourth one, the fourth application of the resurrection. And this has to do, oddly enough, with education. And I mean it in the big sense, not just taking a course. I mean education in the sense of our lives, what we learn. And it's here where we have to part company very seriously and very basically with the world. Now, you talk to the average person involved in the educational bureaucracy of the government, and their purpose of including courses in a curriculum, I mean, they have to decide in curriculum, okay? I mean, you could teach anything from A to Z, and you can't. You only have so many hours. You know, you get rid of the snow days, and then you have holidays, and so the teachers only have so many days a year where they can teach. Well, somebody's got to decide the priorities of the curriculum. And that's a perennial fight. Because the uh, priorities that you use to select the curriculum themselves, those priorities come out of a worldview. And usually the worldview is that education is seeks truth. Sometimes, and more and more, it's no longer truth, but it seeks But it's a moving target. But the idea there's always a political correctness, social comfort, truth, whatever that means, or something. That's the goal of education. It's something that's out there that doesn't mention God in any way. He's not permitted. He's been excised from this definition here. And that's why on the Internet, one of the things that's been passed around, I'm sure you've probably seen it if you have email, but I think it's so cute when um, they paraphrase, uh, you know, uh, the person coming to God and asking him where he was at Columbine, why are you allowing this violence in the schools? And God's response is, I thought you wanted me to leave the schools. And I thought that was very clever. Um, Didn't want me around, so what are you fussing about? You got what you asked for. the proper goal of such activity is not seeking truth. The final thing is appreciation of God's character. 
And you know, that's not just a pious slogan. Just think about that for a minute. I don't know whether this is true of you, but I'll, I'll bet you at least half the people in this room have had this experience. And when you became a Christian and you started getting into the Word of God and your eyes were opened to the wonders of what God can do in history and is doing in history, did that change your attitude about learning more about history or not? Did that make you interested in reading? You bet. Did you get that because somebody banged you over the head and said, you've got to study this to pass a test? That's not the motive. That, that experience, that having your eyes of your heart opened, and all of a sudden these subjects become interesting because it's my father's world. What is he doing there? What did he do over there? I wonder how that fits in with his plan. That's the motivation for learning. And when you got that, you don't have to worry about whether the person's in the classroom, out of the classroom, whether they have a big library, whether they have a little library. You've tiger put a tiger in their tank because the, the call of the, of the image of God is to have fellowship with my Father. And I want to know Him, and I want to know Him better. And it's not just a religious knowing, it's a knowing in every area. The neat things that happen. It's interesting, I, I get this from one of my sons is, is in, of course, medical school, and one of the, before he went to medical school, he had this wonderful professor at college that got him interested in what's going on down inside DNA and, and the structure and biochemistry. Fascinating. And I remember him coming home and all the structure and saying, wow, look at this. How did God do that? And isn't this amazing? So there's a wonder and a worship. You can study the most deep intellectual subject going and worship God with all your heart because all you're doing is you're scratching the surface of what he's done and that is an act of profound appreciation for God now that's the whole thing that's missing here you wouldn't have to worry about motivation to learn if it were put into those terms and if a person isn't interested in learning about God you can't make them learn anything there's no sense in it until a person gets straight with the Lord. Any inclination to learn something is usually to make more money, to do something else, this or that. It's some short-term goal. And you can't interest them. So it boils down to, are, is the person, is the child, or is the adult, are they sincerely interested in knowing the God of the Scriptures? And that applies to algebra, it applies to calculus, it applies to physics, it applies to chemistry, geology, psychology, the arts, music, whatever it is. Because who was there first? Take music. Who were the people that developed music first? The angels. They sang at creation. What key did they sing in? You ever think about that? Did they use eighth notes, sixteenth notes? Did they, what kind of, did they, was it forte, pianissimo? What is it that they used? Art. Ever see in the, in the deep waters of the ocean, the, in the clear areas like Okinawa or down the Caribbean, you see these fish with all these colors. Now, nobody's going to even see the colors. They're all down there. Nobody sees down there unless you take special equipment to go down there and look at them. Well, why are they all pretty colors down there? Because God enjoyed making pretty fish, that's all. He has a sense of art. So there's the art in God. And you get into the structure of math. 
And you say, holy mackerel, how come this all works out so neatly? Why are these ratios always the same? Why is pi pi? And why is it always pi? Why do they stay the same? How does he do that? Why is it that we have the power to think about imaginary numbers that don't exist in the real world, but yet we need them to solve equations with? But they don't exist. Well, how come they can't exist, but we need them to make our equations work? Well, I don't know. They just do that. So that shows you, see, he's, he's got structures beyond the structures that we can even dream about. So Proverbs 1 7 is that, is that, to me, the focal point of education. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And it doesn't mean fear in a runaway sense, it means respect. The respect for the Lord. That's the beginning of wisdom. And if you got that, you get the wisdom. You don't have that, you won't get the wisdom. Folly begins with no fear of the Lord. So, is a person's relationship with God important to education? You better believe this. Without a relationship, there's no motive to learn. So, that's the point of the fourth thing about education. And I want to conclude this section by taking you back to the Westminster Catechism on page 119, one of the most famous portions of that doctrinal creed. We don't agree with everything in the Westminster Confession of Faith, but we have to agree that it was one of the most carefully structured and researched theological statements the church has done. It was done in 1648. And with all due respect to uh, whoever it was on ABC News or NBC when Princess Diana was, uh, had her funeral at Westminster Chapel or uh, Westminster Hall there, I remember with all the cortege and the, the British with their neat white, their um, red bearskin um, guards and the parade, it's only the English can do it into this great cathedral, Westminster. This guy gets on the anchor man on ABC or NBC, I forgot which it was, and he says, this is one of the greatest things that's ever happened at Westminster Abbey. Are you kidding? Well, the greatest thing that ever happened at Westminster Abbey was this. In 1648, when this creed was formed, that's the greatest thing that ever happened there. And what was the question? Look at the question. What is the chief and highest end of man? Man's chief. And by the way, notice how they learned. Now, you can argue with a teaching methodology, but I'll tell you what, these people learned their theology. And they learned it with this question-answer, the catechismal question-answer. It's not necessarily bad. We kind of poo-poo that kind of learning today. But it, it forced people to think now, they could memorize it, wrote, and just spit it back, and it didn't mean anything. That's correct. That can happen. But it wasn't intended to be that. It was intended to show that the Word of God answers deep questions. It was intended to help people formulate questions. So the question is, what is the chief and highest end of man? Now, that's just not an abstraction. You can put your own name, re replace M-A-N with your name. And read it that way if, if it seems too abstract to you. What is the chief end and what is the chief and highest end of me? Put it that way. Man's chief end and highest end is to glorify God and to fully enjoy Him forever. Just remember that last one. Fully enjoy Him forever. God is enjoyable. 
and in a profound way, like C.S. Lewis said, a joy that is far more powerful than anything this world can have, to enjoy him forever. And this is, by the way, this is the theology that is identified with Puritanism. And what's your average thing you get in school about the Puritans? They walked around like this. But that's a caricature of the Puritan. The Puritan was out to enjoy God forever. And they had hymns. They enjoyed each other. It's just, the problem is, the joy that we're talking about here is a joy that's God-centered. And if the unbelief and its hatred, because the carnal mind is enmity with God, can't be subject to God, well... It's going to flee this. It's like Adam and Eve back in the garden. I'm going to hide in the bushes because God's walking here. Well, anybody who's a representative of God, like the Puritans who are enjoying him forever, walks by, I'm going to hide in the bushes. These people are bad people. We keep them out of here. All right, so that's the end of our section. And we're going to close for the season here. And um, we'll have some Q&A afterward for a few minutes. But that's it. And uh, we'll see you in the fall. Uh, when we get into the ascension of Christ. Father, we thank you for our times together. We thank you for the life of Christ, for his birth. And we understand how you invaded history according to a plan from eternity past that was formulated at the same time you designed this person called man. And you designed man with a head, with arms, feet, and bodily features that would reveal who you are and that would also serve as the vehicle for the Son of Man. We thank you for the life of Christ, that as he walked about the face of this earth, he was a constant revelation from you and that we have in flesh and blood, not in an intellectual abstraction, but in flesh and blood, a walking member of the human race who was perfect, and we therefore can deny the statement that to be human, to be heirs, to be human, is not correct. For Jesus Christ never erred. And he is a living refutation of that principle. That it is possible for the human race to live godly. We thank you for his death. We thank you that in his death, he completely solved the sin problem. In the most amazing way, satisfying both your righteousness, your justice, and carrying out your program of grace. And we thank you finally for his resurrection, for the fact that you for 40 days gave proof to the human race that the resurrection was real, that people had a chance to examine it, had a chance to talk to him, had a chance to touch him, to feel him, to carry on conversations, to eat food with him before he ascended on the Mount of, uh, Mount of uh, Ascension. So, Father, we thank you tonight for all these wonderful th truths that will nourish our souls forever and ever. In his name, amen. We have a few minutes left here, so uh, so we'll just throw it open to Q&A. Question. Ah, my starter. <laughs> If it wasn't for Debbie, we'd never get anything done here. Uh, I just have a lot of questions. I'm sorry. But, uh, uh, the, um, in Matthew, where it talks about the others being raised from the dead at the time of Jesus, he died on the cross, and they were, you know, just many other holy, holy, yeah, holy people. 
Um, I hate to disappoint you, but because I haven't studied that text carefully, uh, it was years and years ago, and the impression I got was that it was a genuine resurrection uh, for the reason that it's created a lot of questions in history. Well, where where do these people fit in? And it it seemed to be almost like um, it was some sort of an authentication maneuver by God um, but I, I really, I'm not 100% sure of myself when I call it a resurrection. Obviously, they came out of the graves. Uh, but whether they resuscitated or resurrected, uh, I wouldn't be prepared tonight to say for me, for my beliefs right now. But I just, the impression I got at the time, as I recall, was that uh, most people who study that believe it to be a genuine resurrection. And then they don't know what to do with it. It's like, you know, what happens? And we're not told. We just, you just, it's just reported that it happened. Yes? Well, it's hard to say because we don't, we don't have evidence from the text except that we deduce from the fact that we are now uh, cursed to die, that there were tremendous biophysical things that happened to our bodies so that our present bodies um, probably are, are remarkably different from Adam and Eve. Not that they were bigger or any, they looked, so to speak, different, but physiologically, our bodies are, are dying, and we're all under a death sentence, and there's deterioration biochemically that they never experienced. So what they look like, um, we don't know. There is extra-biblical traditions uh, in the Jewish tradition that they were clothed with light, just like angels, and that uh, when the curse happened, they sinned, their lights went out, and that's how they knew they were naked, that they didn't have a sense of nakedness before. But that's, again, that's extra-biblical tradition. It's not in the text, so we don't know uh, what the story was. Um, Their bodies were mortal in the sense that they could die. They were not like the resurrection. But their bodies apparently would live live forever as long as they took care of them and didn't have an accident, fall out of a tree or something. Um, obviously, they could be injured, um, in, we would think, um, but their body was intended, apparently, to be a vehicle of life so that they would have opportunities to trust the Lord and obey Him and experience God on this planet. Um, and it, we just have to say it was, it was a body sufficient 
to live for as ever how long as God wanted to live to pass the trials, whatever trials it was that was ordained for them to, to have. But other than that, the scriptures do not tell us a thing about it other than we can we make these deductions. We say the DNA of all of us is obviously connected biochemically to their DNA. And what's most intriguing about Adam and Eve's body is that Adam and Eve are one creation. That is not a case where you had masculine genes and feminine genes, and these two then merged in their child. But unlike any other couple in history, they were the same body. They were split apart of the original creation. And that the way Eve was constructed is fascinating in the scripture because um, the Hebrew text gives you this picture that Adam was made. And it's a picture of creation and making and formulating out of dirt and dust. And then those verbs aren't used when it comes to Eve. When, it, when the woman is made, it's the word bana, I think, it's the, it's the, the Hebrew verb there. And it's, it's the used to, to build a building. And we always used to kid each other in Hebrew class when we were learning that, that you say that this woman's well built. Um, it, it, you could say that right from the text of Genesis, because God built her. And, um, and it's, it's, it's a very distinct difference between how man was made and the woman was built. And she was derived from him. So that way in which Adam and Eve were created, we now know to have theological significance. Because that's, the, that's Christ and the church. And that's a warning why when you read the text of the scriptures, you've got to be very careful to take it literally. Because there were commentators for years of the allegorical school treated Genesis 2 like it was just a story, you know, just kind of a picture story for, for ignorant, naive, rural people or something. Um, that's how God created, you know, that was a nice little story. But that really didn't happen that way. Well, yes, it really did happen that way. And that narrative text makes it absolutely impossible to accommodate Genesis to evolution. Because no matter what you do, you can't fit Genesis 2 into any schema of evolution. It won't fit. The only way you can make it fit is to allegorize it. So it becomes just a little story that doesn't have any historical significance. There's a lot in that text. That Genesis 1 and 2 is the most amazing section of Scripture, I think, because there is so much in there written so simply and so brief. And yet, my goodness, we're talking about the speed of light, the, the formation of the universe, planets, stars, the relation of man to the environment, and this strange thing that all animals were created in pairs, and man wasn't. Male and female, he made the animals. Male and female, he did this. Male and female, he did this. And then man, he just made it. Oh, and then afterwards, he split them. So the first creation of man uh, was basically the two sexes were combined. Weird. You know, you wonder, well, what does that look like? But it was, because the scriptures say it was, until they were differentiated. All on the same day, of course, because Genesis 2, remember, we synthesized it with, harmonized it with Genesis 1. But 
to get back to the body, we have nothing beyond the text. This is one of those neat questions, and it, it stimulates your imaginations, and we all tried in our mind's eye to visualize, and artists have tried and tried and tried to reproduce what Adam and Eve looked like. And as I said, and I forgot to do it again tonight, forgot to bring Rita's picture uh, of this uh, lady that was morphed from all the races. And if you look at her, it's just intriguing because you can, you, you, you just do a double take because you kind of look at her and there's part of her that's very familiar. And then there's the other part that in her face that just is different. You don't know what it is. And it's, it's, it's a computerized version of what happens if you pack all the races back together again in the package from which they came. That's always intrigued me to see that. It's all right. Try it. Oh, that's interesting. Laura, did you hear all here, Laura? Uh, that, was that a happy thing for Lazarus? Repeat all the, the issue was that if Lazarus died and was three or four days in Abraham's bosom, then didn't he feel like it was bad news to get pulled from paradise back into life? Uh, that's a, just a really intriguing thought. Um, I have to ask him someday. <laughs> hey, Lazarus, what was that like? <laughs> Charlie, a couple of years back, when my mom passed away, I, I was interested in, in studying uh, the scriptures for what it said about death, what happens in death. Looking at the Old Testament and the New. And for some reason, it just struck me as though it was really kind of obscure. Like in the Old Testament, it talked a lot about the shield. All right, the, the question is, well, the status of people after they die, both in the Old and New Testament, tends to be obscure, uh, more in the Old Testament. Um, and we we're told that Abraham's bosom, we're told about the Sheol and the compartments and stuff. Um, evidently, from Jesus' parables, after death in the Old Testament period, there were two distinct places that the dead went to because you have that in the parable, so that's clear from the text. What's not clear from the text is, you know, what are they doing? Uh, what's going on? Um, that's left in, in the shadows. And in the New Testament, 
there's enough evidence in the text to say that whatever the status was of Abraham's bosom, that has been transformed so that now they're not, not just with Abraham, but Abraham and the occupants of Old Testament Sheol and the people who have died in the New Testament era are with Christ. That's changed. Um, what that means, other than what Paul says, to be absent from the body is to be face to face with the Lord. And he doesn't talk about anything more. And then the saints that come back, by the way, that's at the resurrection. And is talking about in their incorporeal spirit souls coming back and re being rejoined at the resurrection. So they exist in a body less, without the resurrection body, put it that way. And yet, this existence after death has some corporeal qualities to it because, like you quoted, Samuel shows up. And the interesting thing, talk about art and Laura's imagination. I mean, think about uh, Samuel appearing from the dead. He had clothes on. What kind of clothes do you wear? What kind of clothes did the dead wear? Obviously, he wore, and the clothes that he wore, by the way, was a prophet's mantle. Because when the rich of Endor brought him up, she freaked out because she wasn't used to bringing the real thing. See, she was used to this little demonic stuff that she used to play with. And all of a sudden, the real guy shows up, and she knows who he is because he's got the prophetic mantle on, which they must have recognized. So there he's wearing some garment that shows who he was, identifies himself. We're not told that. And the, only, the only guess that we have why we're not told more about it is because God wants us to focus on this life here. And he really doesn't tell us all that our imaginations would want to know about that. The book of Revelation gives you some insights. Um, you have pictures in the book of Revelation where believers are gathered around the throne and praying for vengeance on the earth. That's an interesting one. And they're not praying out of personal vengeance. They're, they're, they are like the imprecatory psalms of the Old Testament that are being prayed in the New Testament in the book of Revelation. And that, the, the nature of the imprecatory prayer, that's those, those damn you prayers, isn't damn you because I hate you as much as it's God, when are you ever going to bring this good evil thing to a conclusion? It's the cry for resolution of the good and evil. And the people who are crying out are the people who are the victims of it, particularly in the book of Revelation, the martyrs. So there's prayer, there's conversation, there's some sort of clothing. And beyond that, we have no earthly idea. And you, what you have to be careful of is in the last 20 years, there's been these books about you know, people who have partially died and then come back. And, and uh, we, we can't tell necessarily whether some of that is de demonic deception because some of it they say, oh, there's this wonderful light that's just warmth. And the people are talking about it are unbelievers. And, I, and you just say, wait a minute. I think I'll prefer the text of the, <laughs> of the Gospels to this thing. But on the other hand, there's enough... Um, evidence from those incidents where people do appear to have an existence outside their body and can look, turn around and look at their body. I was just talking Sunday with, uh, I think it was uh, one of the fellows that went to, uh, no, what G.K. Sefi was talking about, talking to the Russian Christians who had talked to a Russian pastor who was being tortured in the Soviet, back in Soviet times. And, uh, you know, they were breaking his knuckles and doing all kinds of things to get him to, to deny his faith. 
And uh, they said, how do you endure that? I mean, the pain, the, the awful, excruciating pain. Um, what happens? I mean, what did God do to help you get through that? And the pastor told him, he said, well, you know, it was strange because I had prayed before, I knew they were going to torture me, so I prayed that I wouldn't deny my Lord and that he would give me the strength. And he said, when it started happening, it was like the Lord took me out of my body. And he says, I had the impression that I was looking at them torturing me, but that, it, that I didn't feel it. So those are the kind of things that, that have happened. So there's some strange thing that goes on about this thing called the soul. And that our, our senses leave us when we know that our, here's our optical nerve, all the other nerves of our touching. This is our sight. This is our, our thinking. And yet, on the other hand, this faculty seems to be able to leave the body. Now, how does that happen? So it's just like all these questions. You just sit here and say, gee, I don't know. Uh, we've got a lot to learn, you know? <laughs> Maybe it's less than 85 in eternity, <laughs> future or something. But you're right. The, the, the Bible keeps the after-death experience almost deliberately obscure and focuses on the resurrection. And even the resurrection isn't given a great deal of emphasis in the sense that it, it's used as a motive for us, but explaining the fine details like do you, does food taste the same in the resurrection body and those kind of things? No, it doesn't, doesn't tell us at all. So. The Bible raises more questions than it answers. But they're good questions. Any other questions? After we said we don't know how to answer them. Yes. And the question, Laura just raised the question, on the Mount of Transfiguration, Elisha and Moses appear, and the apostles appear to recognize who they are. Now, what's always intriguing about that, they didn't have any photographs. How do they know what Elisha looked like? And unless they inferred it from the conversation. And they heard the Lord talking to Elisha and talking to Moses, and they said, oh, okay, I guess that's what it is. And it must have been that, because I can't believe that they had a photo album. But that was a strange experience. Talk about after-death after experiences. What's this business of Moses and Elisha showing up in, in, in clothing, sitting there talking to the Lord? Now, how did that happen? Beats me. <laughs> Something happened. Yes. In the Mount of Transfiguration, Christ instantly changed. Within, within seconds, within minutes, this happened, this transformed, and it happened in front of their faces. So, what you come away with, I think, in conclusion, what we come away with is what C.S. Lewis keeps telling about this world in which we live is a shadow land, and that when we see the other side, we'll realize, you know, this is a pretty pretty dull, mundane, and very blind existence that we live in. And uh, there's lots of exciting stuff that goes on maybe right around us that we don't know. We've, we've heard time and time again, uh, we'll just conclude with this, but we've heard time and time again about the presence of angels. 
Christians down through the ages have given wonderful testimony to the fact that at times these angels appear. And I'm recalling one in which the Montagnards, who were a darker race in Vietnam, um, missionaries had gone into the Montagnards in the highlands of Vietnam and the war came. And of course the communists came right down that thing and the, they were attacking the Montagnards because the Montagnards were not loyal Vietnamese. They're a different race, totally different subgroup. But they had been heavily evangelized and there were a lot of Montagnard believers. And the one incident I remember being told by one of the military guys was that they had gone in, some special forces teams had gone into that area and they were talking to the Montagnards because they had earlier detected the Vietnamese activity there. And uh, they noticed that the Vietnamese, the Viet Cong had come up looking like they were going to attack this village and then backed off and left it. And so they were talking to the Montagnards about it. Montagnards said, well, I don't, we don't know what happened. We, we, know that, we knew that the Viet Cong were out there and so we had a prayer meeting here in town and we all got in this building, this thing with a straw thing over it and we started praying that God would help us and deliver us. And, and then we don't know because a couple of rounds came in and then that was it. Well, later, that same team captured one of the Viet Cong guys. And the intel was going down through the checklist of this and that and where were you this and where were you last week and what unit you're in. And uh, got to this. And by the way, what was the deal with your group in the Montagnards? And this guy said, um, he said, that was the strangest thing in my life. We had that place surrounded. We were going to put more rounds in there and then come in and just gun them down. And he said, we got everything set up. Everything was ready to go. And all of a sudden, we saw people, white, white, shining white figures sitting on the roofs of that place. And it turned out that place was the place where they have a prayer meeting. And, and it just spooked them. I mean, these guys are kind of half-godly Catholics, uh, half-communists, half-Catholics. And so when they saw that, they just got spooked and took off. They said, well, you know, this is weird. I'm not going to do that and mess with those guys. And who were these guys that were standing up there? They were not visible to the Montagnards that were in the village. They were only visible to the adversaries. So how did that happen? We don't know. It's all these little tricks that God has built into the system. Father, we thank you for our time together this, uh, this year. And we ask that you would... Um, Continue to uh, work your will in each one of our lives. In Christ's name, amen.